Hi everyone, this is Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development with our Emergency Response and Risk Management videocast. I'm delighted to have firefighter George Beatty here with us. He is a specialist in hazmat and I'm delighted to have you with us, George, from the fire department in New York. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it very much. I'd love for you to explain for everyone what you do. I know you're, you're at the senior level of being a firefighter with a hazmat specialization. So tell us what that means and what your role entails. Well, my official title is firefighter. Um, I have 21 and a half years experience in the New York City Fire Department. I have almost 30 total in the fire service uh, with some prior volunteer service before I was on the New York City Fire Department. Uh, since about June of 2012, uh, I have made hazardous materials my sole business. And even though my official title doesn't change, um, my specialization now in what's called Special Operations Command of the New York City Fire Department is uh, hazardous materials response. That's all we do. And so what sort of special training did you have to do to enable you to do that? It's actually a very long road. Uh, it starts off, uh, everybody on the, on the New York City Fire Department has a, uh, what's called an operations level uh, hazardous materials training. It's, it's a basic, um, so that people can, uh, the, the, the members can recognize things and uh, mostly understand what they can and cannot accomplish with the limited knowledge that they have. Um, the Special Operations Command members all have a an additional um, an additional uh, time frame of training beyond that the the, um, the initial training is 80 hours uh, we have 120 hours and beyond that uh, the the hazmat company of which there is only one in the New York City Fire Department we have a broad collection of schools that we go to uh, throughout the United States for things like explosives, for chemical weapons, uh, for uh, hazardous materials response on the roads to tractor trailers and vessels, uh, stuff that's in the railroads. Uh, we also have a, a really thorough radiation response course that we do out in, uh, in Nevada, uh, outside of Las Vegas, uh, right out where they did all of the uh, atomic testing in the, uh, in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. Uh, and beyond that, there are all kinds of in-house trainings that we do with um, not only our, our, uh, our meter uh, and equipment suppliers, but outside vendors like uh, some of the people that do uh, propane specifically, um, some of the companies that do uh, transportation of things like gasoline and diesel fuel on the roads. Uh, we do familiarization with some of their facilities, uh, with their equipment, with their their uh, transportation equipment, uh, because those are the things that we're going to come in contact with the most. So we'd like to try and be as familiar with that as we can. Uh, beyond that, uh, we do in-house drills with, uh, with our new members, with, with people that are, are just coming into the company. Like I said, I've been there a little over eight years now, so I am a fairly senior member of the company. And at this point, we've created a group of what we call mentors, and you are assigned uh, a new guy, and when the new guy is busy trying to learn the trade, uh, you are responsible for uh, for helping him to understand anything he doesn't understand and help him through the process. Uh, that wasn't something that, that I had, unfortunately, but it's relatively new uh, for us. 
but it's a very good uh, a very good way to help new guys who come into the company who aren't specifically uh, you know aimed in this direction or don't have any background that helps them with it and uh, they they seem to they seem to uh, kind of excel a lot faster uh, when they have that kind of help uh, specifically and it works well and and uh, and I enjoy it I never really saw myself as being a uh, you know a senior man or being the uh, you know the go-to person for any of this and that, you know, at this point, with as much time as I've been doing this, that's actually the case, and uh, uh, it's uh, it's very it's humbling. It's it's very interesting. It also helps us to stay on top of uh, of the trade because we're constantly going over the basics. Uh, you know, to teach the guys that are coming in. So that's actually very helpful for uh, for us as well as them. You said that there's a number of schools that provide this specialist training. Are they? I know that FEMA at a federal level does training in incident command, the incident command system. Does the fire department nationally have have this built up as a training system, or is it specialised universities? How does it work? Well, some of them they're all different, actually. Um, the we'll start with the, the first school that that you're you're allowed to go to after you've been checked through everything in the company is what we call bomb school and bomb school is actually run by uh, New Mexico tech uh, out in, um, in New Mexico. And it's a, it's, I believe it's university run by New Mexico tech, but they have a whole bomb range where uh, they do a lot of explosives uh, study. Um, we, we go out there and they, they do a lot of talking about, about how, uh, uh, improvised explosive devices are made. You know, they, they talk about, uh, some of the, the ones that we're familiar with. They talk about Oklahoma city. They talk about the first bombing in the world trade center. Um, they also had recreated the, uh, the guy who tried to bomb Times square that he built the, the bomb with the propane tanks into the Nissan pathfinder. And they actually have one there that looks exactly like the truck. Uh, that was there, um, and they they build a few bombs. Uh, it's it's not um, it's it's really fun to watch, but it's kind of limited for us because you're not actually allowed to touch anything, and we can't even set it off. We have to we have to watch from a distance. So it's fun to a certain point, but we are very hands on people, and not being able to do anything hands on for that means it's kind of limited. Um, the uh, the school that's in Anniston, Alabama, is run by the CDP, um, and that is a chemical biological weapons school where they teach you all about uh, how those materials work, how to protect yourself from them, how to detect them. Uh, that is, I believe, is federally run. The uh, the the one school that that's my favorite actually uh, is the one that's in Pueblo, Colorado. That's called TTCI. It's actually a research facility for everything to do with the railroads. Um, and you go out there to do courses for uh, not only the railroad, but for highway response uh, for hazardous materials. They have a couple of different classes related to that. They also do a class called Crude by Rail, which specifically deals with uh, some of the, the heavy-duty crude oil transportation that's done by rail throughout the country. Uh, that's not one we typically do, but every once in a while you can slip that in by the chief and, and get out there and take it. Um, it's, a, it's a great facility. It's out in the middle of the desert. It's a secure facility. Um, i trying to think what else. Um, the, the federal government, I know, runs the 
the facility that's in that's outside of Las Vegas, the Radiation School, uh, that is obviously done on the uh, partly on the site where all of the nuclear testing was done prior to Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, in the in the mid 40s, and that's actually a military base, and it butts up against like Area 51 is right there. It's about five miles down the road, so that is all very highly secure, and they don't let you forget about it when you're on the bus heading out there. You're not allowed to take pictures. You're not allowed to use your cell phone. You're you're basically have no connection to the outside world when you go there, and it's too bad because the the, the history that is is ingrained in that place, uh, that the stuff that I saw that I was not allowed to take pictures of is absolutely fascinating. And, you know, you can stand on the edge of Sedan Crater, which is one of the biggest ones that's there from, from one of the atomic blasts, and just, it, it's, it's unbelievable. And I really would have loved to have taken a picture of it, and I can't. But, uh, but that's obviously run by the federal government because that's a military, that's a military installation. So it's, it's kind of a mix. Some of them are, are, are private per se, and some of them are actually run by, uh, by the government, by the federal government. Tell us about one of your very first experiences when you took on this new role and what it was like and what you learned. That's interesting. Nothing... There's nothing that really stands out. Actually, the, the, the biggest thing that happened at the beginning of my time, uh, specifically in Hazmat, was Hurricane Sandy. It happened right in that fall. I got there in June, and the hurricane happened that fall. I think it was in September. I don't remember. Um, and that immediately thrust us into... Uh, responding out to places like the Rockaways, which are the southern part of Queens on the Atlantic Ocean, and there are a lot of uh, a lot of bungalow houses and a lot of beach houses, and I think a lot of people really didn't know what to expect. Obviously, with a hurricane, you never really know what you're you know what's going to happen. So a lot of people had, uh, with the impending storm and possibility of power going out, had filled up their oil tanks and had stocked up on on fuel for generators and stuff like that. And of course, as soon as the floodwaters come in, the oil tanks come off the ground and start floating and people's basements fill up with water. The tanks start floating. They unload, excuse me, unload the oil onto the, you know, onto the top of the water. And then the house is flooded with oil. Uh, you had a, a high school out there in Rockaway that had uh, about 30,000 gallons worth of oil in their, in their boiler room and their tanks floating around. The wow. tanks hadn't come open, but they were, you know, they were, they were floating in the room. It had about 14 feet of water in it. Um, you know, and obviously the difference there is we can deal with 275 gallons of oil. I have nothing to do to, with 30,000 gallons. It's, it's simply beyond our capacity. Right. So it, some of it was kind of an eye-opening experience to see the difference between, you know, when, you, when you're in the middle of a, you know, a real, real destructive uh, storm that, that did so much damage to, to everybody's lives and, uh, lives and livelihoods, uh, the difference between the things you can take care of and the things that you simply can't. So that was, that was pretty much a, a, you know, an eye-opener when, when I started doing that as a, as a full-time gig to, to see, uh, you know, you have to know when to say when uh, or when to say, yeah, this is beyond us. We need to call a contractor or somebody else that has this capacity. We simply don't have the tools for it. So what would be um, one of the most interesting experiences you've had in your role? Oh, wow. 
there's a there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of kind of off the wall things um, things you probably wouldn't expect. the The common runs we have are hydrocarbons. They are truck accidents. They're car accidents with leaking diesel fuel, leaking gasoline. That's that's kind of the the bulk of what we do because there's so many roads in New York City. But we have other we have other oddballs that are uh, that are more common than you would think. One of them is propane. Uh, surprisingly enough, the other one is mercury. Um, and the the interesting thing about those is that I never considered those to be a big deal or something that I'd see very much when I was in my initial uh, you know training for the higher level of response. You know, they, they teach you about this. I said, well, you know, mercury is, is outlawed in this country. It's been outlawed since probably the late 90s or, you know, around 2000. So I know that these things are out there, but, you know, how big of a deal could it be? And it's actually quite a lot bigger of a deal than I ever thought. And we do a decent number of those runs for, you know, everything from, you know, little tiny thermometers or, uh, you know, every once in a while, one of the, the BP cuffs from a doctor's office will fall off the wall and you'd be surprised how much mercury is actually in one of those things. And then you have, uh, you know, people whose uh, who's father died, grandpa died, they're cleaning out the house and they come up with a bottle that's extraordinarily heavy and they're looking at it and they think they know what's in it and they, they, you know, throw it in the garbage or they, if we're really lucky, they put it off to the side and they call somebody and you go there and retrieve an unusually large amount of mercury. And if you're not lucky, they've thrown it in the garbage, it broke and now it's everywhere. And now we go and it takes six hours to clean it up. So, um, those are, those are definitely things that I didn't expect. Um, the, I can't think of anything else. How do you clean up mercury? Uh, believe it or not, the best way is with a, a vacuum that is specifically made for mercury. It has several layers of filtering on it to make sure that you don't aerosolize uh, the, the, the mercury as you're picking it up. Um, there's, there's actually quite a few ways to do it, depending on how much of it, where it's spilled, and you know how far away it got because it doesn't just drop on the floor it immediately tries to find all of the edges of the room and if you're in an old house that has uh you know wood flooring with cracks in it good luck it's it's going to sink into everything uh we're actually very happy to see when somebody drops it on the carpet because the carpet catches it and you cut that part of the carpet out put it in a bag and you're you know you're halfway to done um the the hardest part about mercury is that if it's been in the room and it's a warm day, it vaporizes and you have a room full of mercury vapors and getting the, the levels down to acceptable, which is basically next to nothing, can be very challenging to do. And it's usually a, a, a lengthy operation, several hours at a minimum. Um, you know, there's, there's some very good personal protective equipment that's involved in it. Uh, and if it's on a warm summer day, I'm, I'm going to sweat three or four gallons of sweat out while I'm involved in this. And we all will. It's, they can be a little trying. Tell us about your, your kit, what you wear and what you carry with you. That would be interesting. Well, mostly uh, our response is the same as it would be uh, if we were riding a regular fire truck. We respond in turnout gear, uh, mostly because we, we uh, if it's an unknown, we're more worried about flammability than we are about anything else. Uh, so we respond regular turnout gear the way we would normally uh, uh, anywhere else in the fire service. We have 
a whole collection of various PPE, everything from uh, we call Tyvek suits, which are essentially plastic um, one way or another, um, kind of like a, like a painter suit, but instead of being made out of cloth, it's made out of plastic. Uh, we have uh, something called a lion suit, which is a flexible, uh, relatively vapor tight outfit. That's a, it's a level B. Uh, it allows us to wear our SCBA. The SCBA is on the outside of the suit. Uh, it's basically encapsulated with the exception of the seal that's around the face piece. Uh, we of course have level A, uh, fully encapsulated suits for the worst of the worst. We rarely use those out on the street. Most stuff we can take care of without them. Um, there's also, we have uh, crash fire rescue gear, which is the stuff you see at the airports. That's those silver suits uh, because we have two of the world's busiest airports that are enclosed within uh, the city of New York, uh, LaGuardia and JFK. Luckily, we don't go there very often, and they have their own fire departments uh, that are made up of the Port Authority of New York uh, that are there and they have all of that equipment as well. So, uh, most of the time we don't actually get to use that, but it has happened and I've actually done it once myself in the last eight years. Uh, so, you know, we, we do occasionally get to go to deal with, uh, with airplane items of one kind or another. So with the current challenges with COVID-19, has anything changed with the way that you go about business? I think everything has changed about how we go about business. Uh, things are actually starting to, they're starting to change back towards normal at this point. I think it's going to be a very, very long road. Um, initially, when this started, uh, we, were, we were sanitizing every touched surface five or six times a day. Um, I actually came down with COVID very quickly at the beginning. I was diagnosed on the 2nd of April. Uh, luckily, I had a very, very mild case. I was sick for about five days. It was far from the worst sick I've ever been. Um, I'm one of those people who is rarely ill. And when I do get ill, I get better pretty quickly. And this was no exception. Uh, but we were we were wiping down the fire trucks three or four times a day, everything in the firehouse. Um, we don't typically go out and deal with the public the same way we did when I was a regular line firefighter. Uh, but the, the, the other unit that's in my house, which is a squad company does. And so since we're around them, that exposure is still there. So, uh, yeah, we have to be incredibly cognizant about, uh, you know, trying to learn as much as we can about how this thing works and how to protect ourselves from it. And unfortunately, since it's new, there really isn't much known. So the learning curve had to be pretty quick. And there was a whole bunch of us that got sick along the way. And, and when this started, I pretty much thought about it as this isn't an if I'm going to get sick, this is a when. And that's exactly how it how it happened. Not everybody that I work with did get sick and there are still people who are, uh, they're afraid that's going to happen. Uh, I've been tested several times. I, uh, I have antibodies still from about uh, mid-May and plenty of the people that I work with who were sick are, you know, now the same way. You have a f very few people who showed up with antibodies who never got sick, but they the, the precautions that we've taken were similar to what everybody else is, is doing, but since the, the firehouse has a constant movement of, of members, 
uh, probably about, there's probably about 65 people in total that are assigned there. You have a constant movement from all kinds of places in and out of the firehouse. That's just the way it works. And any firehouse does the same thing. It might not be as many people, but obviously we're going two different directions. We have people like me who live north of New York City. Most of the people in my firehouse work or uh, live out on Long Island, which is east of New York City. And we're traveling back and forth and touching all kinds of surfaces and interacting with all kinds of different environments that you could potentially bring something to the firehouse from. So we had to be as cognizant as we could be about that to, uh, to, to limit what you touch. And hazmat, we're already, I don't want to say we're predisposed, but we're taught about how to avoid um, transferring contamination from one place to another. And that's one thing when you are out on a scene because you're thinking about that all the time. I don't think about it when I leave the firehouse, get in my car and come home. And that's what you, we were forced to do. And a lot of people that we, that we watched on TV and a lot of people we talked to uh, when no one else was moving anywhere, when the whole entire country was shut down, I would come home and I would take my clothes off in the garage and immediately go into the house and go into the shower and my clothes would go right into the washing machine in an attempt to, to keep this out of my house. Ultimately that didn't work. Um, I, you know, my, basically everyone in my house eventually got sick. No one was very seriously sick. My daughter who is nine years old got over this in 24 hours, uh, which was fantastic to see. Uh, my wife was, was the one who got sicker than everybody, but even she wasn't really that bad. And now her doctor tells her that she has more antibodies than he's ever seen. Uh, so um, the, the idea that you would have to take what we do on the street at an operation back to your home and into every other aspect of your life was very challenging for me to do. And I'm sure I wasn't the only one that, that had, a, had a hard time trying to work that into your entire life. Mm. Very, very challenging for first responders such as yourself and particularly the, um, the specialised nature of the work that you do. We would want you to get over it very quickly. I would imagine that in your line of work, you have to be strong, you have to be healthy. You're getting regular, regular health checks along the way. Would that be the case? Yes, the, uh, the fire department keeps a, a pretty good tab on us. We do regular medicals. Um, the hazmat company specifically has a, a deeper battery of, of uh, things that they test our blood for. There's, there's all kinds of heavy mm. metal screenings and, and things like that where they, they look a little bit deeper. Um, but ultimately, it's up to us. Uh, you know, the job can only do so much. Uh, I keep a, a, a pretty close watch on uh, on my blood work and on everything else I, i'm like i said i'm generally a healthy person i'm very glad that i inherited that trait from my father who i think i've seen sick twice in his life uh, so when i am sick i don't stay sick very long and luckily that helped me out here too but uh, we definitely try to keep a close eye on it and you know if somebody doesn't feel right if one of us doesn't feel right you know, we, we try to do something about it. But most of us are, are very healthy. Uh, we're people who, who uh, try to stay in shape. And it's not easy to, to survive inside of some of the PPE that we have. Uh, 
uh, in hot environments like now when it's 95 degrees in New York City and you're out on the pavement, anything you're wearing is can be torturous. And, uh, you know, hopefully everybody, uh, you know, stays on top of their, their own health so that you can do the job that you're supposed to do and be able to do it in those environments, in those, those outfits, uh, because they are fairly grueling uh, when the temperature's high. They can be fairly grueling in the middle of the winter, but definitely in the summertime, it is very, very tough sometimes to, uh, to operate that way. George, in the last couple of minutes that we have left, I'd love for you to share some career advice or some learnings or experiences that people should aim to go through if they aspire to have a similar role that you've got. Well, I've thought about, I've thought about this anytime anybody has asked me. Uh, you know, how did I get into this? Uh, you know, where did it come from? How did you start? The actual process for, uh, for joining the New York City Fire Department, it takes time. It starts off with, with finding out when the next test is and filling out the paperwork and going to take the test. And, and there's, uh, these days there are, there are books you can read that will help you to study for the test. And that's all well and good. Um, in my case, this, I always describe this to people as being a fireman and doing what I do is not a job that I do. This is something that is in me. It's who I am. And I figured this out kind of by accident when I was about 19 years old. Uh, I joined the volunteer fire department while I was in college. And some friends of mine that I met there suggested that I take the New York City Fire Department test. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to school. I'm going to be an engineer which I did, and I am a mechanical engineer, and, and that was something that I did alongside this. And initially, I looked at this as being kind of a, kind of a fallback, kind of a, this is something I'm going to hold in reserve in case I need it. And what I learned very early on uh, in my, my volunteer days was that this is really, this is really in me somewhere. It's, it's not a job. This is, this is really who I am. And the, the idea that some people know innately who they are or what they are wasn't something that really, really struck me as being real until many years after I was in the fire service. Because initially, this was just something that I, that I did for fun. And then when I got involved with, with taking, you know, starting the process for the New York City Fire Department, I thought about it and I said, I said this actually could turn into something really incredible. And it was at that point that my father told me a funny story that I had never heard. And the story was that his father, who I never met, wanted to join the New York City Fire Department. And my grandfather was born in 1895 in Brooklyn. And, and the fire department was a vastly, vastly different thing way back then. So the story goes that he wanted to join the fire department and my grandmother refused to marry him if he did. So he chose her. My father, who I think was very quietly living vicariously through me, he wanted to join the fire department, and, it, and for a, a time period, there was a height restriction, and he was too short. So, in our family's case, this was third time's the charm. So, apparently, it's been, it's been in the blood for quite some time in my family, and I didn't know it until after I was already involved. Uh, and that's kind of how I tell the story of that. But when I think about it and I think about this is, this is really, this is what I'm about. This is who I am. This is not, uh, this is not just something I picked out of thin air. 
Um, but my advice to anybody else would be that if, if this is something that interests you, the best thing you can do is to educate yourself on what does it take? Because I think there are some people that get involved in, in career paths for maybe for reasons that don't have as much to do with them as it might have to do with the way mom and dad are pushing them. If that's the case, my parents never pushed me to do anything other than to go find what I wanted to do. And, uh, that's, you know, I found this along the way in that way, but, but I think anybody who's, you know, who has this in them, who wants to, wants to do it, needs to figure out where do they want to do this and figure out what it takes. And I trained myself as hard as I could before I went to take the physical examination for the fire department, because I wanted to make sure that I gave it everything I had. And if I didn't make it, it wasn't because I didn't try hard enough. It was because I simply wasn't built for that. And I surprised myself more than I surprised anybody else. Because when I was growing up, the people that I knew who were New York City firemen just seemed like mountains. They just seemed like, like Goliaths. And I said, there's no way I'm going to do this. And I took the test and I did extraordinarily well, which surprised no one more than me. And the advice I would give you is if this is what you want to do, try as hard as you can. Don't let anything get in your way if that's really what you want and give it everything you have. Because if you don't make it, at least you're not going to think back and say, if I tried a little harder, I might've made it. You give it everything you got because that's what I did. And I followed this because there was a voice inside of my head somewhere that said, this is really what you were about. Mm. And I did better than I thought I was going to do. And to this day, I laugh about that. But I also realized that that was a, a huge learning experience for me about me. And that's really it. I love it. Calling. It's in your blood. Yes, sir. George, really want to thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for sharing your experiences. I'm sure there will be people who are inspired uh, to follow in your footsteps. So we wish you all the very, very best. I certainly hope so. 